If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. Getting your team up to date on the latest skills required for success is hard work, but you don't have to worry about it anymore. Jolt is an online training platform that helps professionals and organizations access up-to-date training from practitioners at the top of their game. No more watching e-learning videos that are not interactive and may contain obsolete information where you access them. Each Jolt training is done live via interactive Skype or webinar and the trainers are both practitioners and thought leaders in your field. So you get the latest information that can change your business at the right time. Visit jolt.us and find out how you can start getting the right training for your team today. That's www.jolt.us. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. That's www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. I'm speaking with Lee Karaha. Lee is the author of The Boomerang Principle. She is the she's an entrepreneur and a CEO who has spent over 20 years building positive, high-performing work teams that get a lot done as well as have fun at the same time. She's a highly sought-after communications expert and she's known for delivering high-value keynote addresses for public and private companies. She started her company Double Forty over 15 years ago and it's grown to become one of the leading digital and public relations agencies in the United States. It's headquartered in San Francisco and has an office in New York City. I'm pleased to have her on the line today to talk to us a little bit about her background and her books. So Lee, welcome to the show. Gee, it is so wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. Great, Lee. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So um, I started this company, Double Forte, 15 years ago with a friend. And I've um, my whole career, though, has been in public relations or communication. After college, I um, got a job on in Boston at an agency. And I, I was lucky enough to land in the career that was really I was really well suited for. I worked in agencies in um, the Boston area for several years, and I moved to Los Angeles after the doctor told me that I was sun sensitive and that if I didn't want to be depressed in the winter, I should go into a um, <clears throat> a, a tanning booth. <laughs> but I'm Irish of Irish descent, and if I went into a tanning booth, I'd turn into a french fry, so I was like, maybe I should just go where the sun is instead of going to a tanning booth every day. So I moved to Los Angeles, where I didn't know a soul, you know, this this city of uh, 20 million people. I didn't know anybody, but um, had a lot of fun in um, also in PR, and then I moved um, to San Francisco area for a job um, that was at Sega of America, which is the video game company, when they were a billion and a half dollars company. And I was there for about six years and launched about 2,000 products there, um, working wow. for public relations, customer service, events, and um, communication. 
Then I left Sega when they decided to go forward with the Dreamcast platform, their last platform, and then went to a very large media company where I started uh, the West Coast operations for one of the larger brands. After 2011, uh, in 2011, after 9-11, I decided I didn't want to do that anymore and thought I would take a whole year off of time. I had two young children at the time, and um, I had been on the flight from New York to San Francisco um, on 9-4. So one week earlier from 9-11, I was like, you know, I'm not really having that much fun. I think I should rethink my life. I thought I would um, take a whole year off and then go get a job like the one I'd had at Sega. Um, and a couple things happened. One, I drove my husband crazy. <laughs> Two, <laughs> one day is like, you know, all this organizing you're doing in the house, it's not helping. Um, and then my... M- Two, we had uh, termites in our house, so we had to replace all the walls and all the windows. And all the money that I was saving for to spend a whole year away from the workplace had to go into saving my house. So going back to work was a good idea. And then um, I was in the job hunt when my mom um, got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And so it was very clear that I was going to be with her uh, for however long it took for her to live out her days. So I I withdrew myself from the two job hunts and started Double Forte out of need more than anything else, actually. Um, and that was 15 years ago, um, which, you know, at the time I was like, I just need to not drive my husband crazy and make sure that I can pay the mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> and 15 years later, you know, Double Forte is still around and we're still doing great stuff. Great, great. It just seems like your back was to the wall and you had no choice. Pretty much. What to just uh, make it. That's usually how it ends up with most entrepreneurs where you're sometimes in your comfort zone, you know, thinking you can do it. And then something happens that has to just push you to that edge where you, you jump and you fly or you or you fall. And most people tend to fly <laughs> when they get to that point. So that's... That's really great. So um, before we talk a little bit about Double Forte, I want you to share a little bit about some of your experiences. You, I mean, you worked with Sega and they launched about mm-hmm. 2,000 products while you were there. I remember I used to have a Mega Drive growing up as a child. Oh my gosh, the Mega Drive. <laughs> so you must have been around there for that. So, yes, I was. <laughs> so, so what were like some of the best things you experienced working for a large company like Sega and what were some of the terrible things you experienced because I'm sure you must have drawn on these um, experiences that you started to write your your first two books well you know the going into Sega when I went into Sega Sega was at the top of the game yes. in the United States and um, you know Sega Genesis which was Mega Drive here um, you know, top of the game, Sonic the Hedgehog, mm-hmm. Echo the Dolphin, yeah. you know, just huge properties. And um, it was, you know, just opportunity, opportunity. And what I, and then um, 32X and Sega Saturn and then um, all these other, so many other hardware parts and then Sega Dreamcast. Mm. Um, um, and then, you know, thousands of software titles um, for all those things. In the handhelds and all that kind of stuff. I learned a tremendous amount at Sega. And I I credit Sega for me becoming a business person, actually. Okay. The business of 
video games is, you know, it sounds really exciting and sexy. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. And like, oh, my gosh, you know, the ins and outs of any business uh, when you are learning a big industry and sort of what a million dollars investment does here to that and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I just learned so, so much about business being at Sega, being responsible for one of the major brands in the world, Sega, at the time was a huge opportunity for me and understanding sort of thinking about things in the big scale, you know, not just, you know, not just incremental, but exponential impact, um, was, uh, changed my frame of reference for everything that I do. And then, um, I ran customer service, which, which I had never done before and customer service changed my point of view about communications and public relations because in most places they're not connected in the same PNL. Um, and I was sort of given customer service because it communicates and I was like, okay, I'll go figure that out. Um, and really having direct contact with the consumer. And this was before really the internet, (laughs) before email, uh, before, um, well, before we had a lot of email going coming into the company, we had a lot of listservs, but not a lot of email coming into the company before Twitter, before Facebook, all this kind of stuff. And we had millions and millions and millions of customers. And just having the responsibility to keep a brand um, top of mind and positive mind with customer base really changes your whole point of view about everything. So um, – I learned so much there and I'm so grateful for that experience and the people that I worked with there. The, um, what it really, what really the Sega experience gave me was a base of people on which to build my own business because most of the clients that we have today are, well, not most, half of the clients we have today are somehow connected to my time at Sega, Mm -hmm. um, with people who I worked with and who knew what I could do. Um, and who brought me along with them as they moved along in their careers. So you learned so much from Sega. You got to make these lifelong connections that became eventual clients. And then, mm-hmm. as you said earlier, you had a life-changing event that forced you to start Double Forty. And um, as we were speaking on the pre-chat, I, um, you're a podcaster. I know I didn't mention that in the introduction, but you're a podcaster as well. And on your podcast, you had um, two guests that I've actually had on the show recently. AJ, oh, really? AJ Wilcox and Pia. So, oh, wonderful. So some of the stories you shared there in terms of your experiences and building your business, um, I mm-hmm. pretty much got the sense of the fact that you're, you're a kindred spirit. You know what you're talking about. So I'm going to ask <laughs> you this <laughs> straight away. As you started your company and you launched um, Double Forty in the early years, like like you like you did, what were some of the struggles you faced? Because I know you've asked similar questions to people. Yeah. Sure. Well, <laughs> well, you know, nothing's as easy as it looks, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that it, it's always important to remember that. Like there are days when I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just so hard, and what am I doing, and what was I thinking, and and the other days, it's like, of course, we're just sailing along. And I, I'm reminded that in this country, you know, only 4% of companies make it past four years. Mm-hmm. So 15 years, you know, we got it going on. That's awesome, right? Um, I think the in terms of some of the big, you know, the first thing we had to do was decide how we were going to be different from anybody, everybody yeah, else. And the branding and what we were going to stand for, what our values were. And 
so we have a, had a different model when we started and, um, it was a high value model, high cost value, high cost, high value business model, which, um, saved a lot of time in many things and cost a lot of money in other things in terms of um, not taking business. You know, we, we were very specific that we wanted to work with people that we liked and we didn't want to work with jerks. Mm. Um, and uh, there were a lot of jerks who wanted to work with us. Mm. So leaving money on the table was challenging, particularly when you look, you're staring down payroll and you're like, Oh my God, Oh my gosh. Right. So, um, that's a challenge, but I what I've learned the I learned it a couple of times the hard way, and I really try to stick to this. Is not every not every dollar is equal. equal. You know, yeah. there's there's easy there's good money and there's bad money. Yeah. And you should not take things that are bad money because bad money costs and good money is friction. You know, less friction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm all about as less friction as possible throughout my day. Yeah. Yeah, because um, you mentioned in that I uh, actually had one coach. That I worked with as I was starting my business, and he, he told me that look, chief, first thing you have to do when you're starting a business, you you have to. He he showed me his scale. It was called the uh, the asshole scale. He said, a, <laughs> the, there's no amount of money that equals any amount of asshole. So the maximum mm-hmm. amount of asshole you need to get to is a three. Anything beyond the three, there's no amount of money. <laughs> What was the scale? Ten or five? Yeah, it's like ten. <laughs> yeah, it's true because here's the deal, right? You'll, you're going to put more effort into a company, into um, a company or an opportunity or a client that is not going to return for you, just to keep, just to keep it, right? Yeah. And if you can't, you know, and there's lots of rules, you know, and how you define what an asshole is and what isn't, right? Mm-hmm. It's up to you. Um, it's one person's asshole is another person's gem, I guess. Mm. I mean, I don't know if that's really true, but maybe that's true. <laughs> and, um, you know, if people aren't going to respect us, if they're not going to pay it. And so we, you know, what we did to some of the things we did to ferret out who would be a good person to work with or not is that we structured our contracts in a way that um, I have two clauses in my contracts that are non-negotiable. One is you pay us something up front. Okay. And two is that if you take one of my people, you pay us two and a half times their compensation. Wow. And um, there's some flexibility on the actual number, mm-hmm. right? Depending on How a lot long? of variables. Mm-hmm. But striking those clauses from the contract is a non-starter. And if clients won't sign that contract, we will not work with them. Mm-hmm. So we have found some ways to figure, you know, I do a lot of due diligence on the people before we even you know, go to meet with them. And then when we get into contract negotiation, you learn a lot about people in contract negotiation. And I've structured my contracts to, you know, sort of ferret out things that are good for our business that are not, you know, they're not, they're good business practices. Um, And if there can't be some give and take, then I don't want to work with them Hmm. because I know the shit's going to hit the fan. Excuse my language. The shit's going to hit the fan and it's going to be our fault if people are not willing to negotiate and Mm -hmm. and give it back and forth. And it seldom is one person's fault, right? If something doesn't happen. Yeah. You find out a lot. You know, I learned that uh, in my previous job when I was running the large entity. Um, I learned that then when... And I brought that forward in my business in, in actually a harder, you know, much in, with higher stakes. When it's your money, it's higher stakes, right? Yep, always. Your yep. money seems to be worth 10,000 times more. 
but it's coming from your pocket. So you start yeah. your company <laughs> and you're running your company, and then you you had some problems in terms of you hiring millennials. Could you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about some of the things sure. that were happening in your business at the time, and so then what led you to write your book, yeah. your first book? Absolutely. So 2002, we started the company and we only hired people who had 10 years of experience or more. So by definition, they were 32 years older or or higher. Um, So Gen Xers are boomers, basically. Then in 2008, when the Great Recession happened, it was very clear what was going to happen in our business. We had 18 people at the time. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we'll be happy if we get to keep half these people, given what's going on in the economy. Um, And I I had been through this before, so I was able to strip out every dollar in business that wasn't salary um, and the bare bones um, overhead. And in in the end, um, we was able to keep the majority of our people, um, even though our business went down, right? Um, But every time you go into that, right, you go into uh, something that hiccups the economy, hiccups your little economy and your client in your in your company or hiccups the world economy or the regional economy, whatever you really, my advice to everybody is to look at your business model because you cannot imagine that the business model that got you into the problem will be the business model that gets you out of the problem. If it was your fault or not. Yeah. So we looked at our business model and we looked at the, um, sort of statistics in the San Francisco Bay area and all this kind of stuff. And we realized that we we're going to run out of people with 10 years of experience because no one got really hired in our business between 2000 and 2004. So we were going to have a big donut hole of nobody at the bottom level um, of eligibility, which is not a recipe for success. You want to always bring bring people in the bottom level of your eligibility. So, um, and they're also expensive people. 10 years of experience is expensive. And so you hit, you know, that doesn't give you as much flexibility. So we decided to um, change the business model, and we didn't revert to what most agencies do. We have a very different model than most agencies, but it did mean we were going to hire people who had not worked, you know, people who were 22 to 30, right? And I did not think anything of this, Chi. I was like, I was known for hiring young people. I mean, I had, in my previous company, I had over 750 people, probably 690 of them were under 30. So I didn't really think anything of it. I was known as a developer of people. I was known as a great recruiter, great retainer. People liked working in my organizations, blah, blah, blah. Um, And we hired our first millennial. And she brought her dog to work the first day. And I was like, (laughs) what is this dog doing here? Did we know the dog was coming? No. Did she ask if she could bring her dog? No. Did she tell us she was bringing her dog? No. Is anyone allergic to dogs? I don't know. Well, let's find that out first, right? And she didn't just bring her dog. She brought her water filtration system, a dog bed, and a kibble dispenser. Well, the dog was coming in. I mean, the dog was, like, moving into the office. And um, in San Francisco, I mean, actually all over the United States, if the dog is a service dog, has the red jacket, you have to let the dog stay. And this dog had a red jacket. And the dog is a chihuahua. So it's not what I thought of as a service dog, yeah. right? I was thinking the service dog is a black lab who helps you cross the street when you're blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was working so, the system. in the system. Well, uh, that sort of took me by surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and I called one of my friends. I said, this one doesn't happen. Oh, my gosh. And she, oh, my God, ladies, millennials, they're so terrible. They'll take advantage of you. Oh, my God, they're horrible. Don't hire them. 
I was like, what you, what's a millennial? I had no idea. Right. And because um, I'd never hired somebody in this company, Double Forte, who wasn't at least 32 years old. Yeah. So let me be really clear. This woman is a rock star. She's so great. Um, she ended up having to move because her mother got very ill and she, like me, decided to have, um, you know, align her work being close to her mom. Um, but she is a rock star, mm-hmm. you know, being her dog to work had no bearing on how good her work was, but it was very off putting. Right. And yeah. actually before the end of two months, I had like nine service dogs in the, in the office because she was running the side business, showing people how to get their dogs with jackets. Oh my God. Anywho. So, um, I really, you know, we figured that out and then, um, it took a long time cause we we're coming out of the recession and it, the fastest thing to do would be to hire, fire half the people and hire new ones to get to the business model. We decided we were going to end up, that's not really how I operate. So it took us a long time to get to hiring a lot of millennials at the same time. And when I say a lot, again, we're a small company, 35 people. So we hired six millennials within eight weeks of each other. And within three months, they were all gone. Whoa. And I had never had a hundred percent failure in recruiting and retention in my career. Yeah. It was a body, a hundred percent failure. I mean, oh my, I don't think I even knew how to say those words about myself. <laughs> and one person could have been them, right? I could have, we could have made one bad hire, but we mm-hmm. could not make six bad hires. Yeah. So in reflect, I was like, okay, it's gotta be us. It's gotta be us. Right. Um, cause it's expensive to hire. It's expensive to lose people when you don't want to lose them. It's, ex- mm-hmm. it's just expensive. Mm-hmm. And we started looking at it and, um, we realized I started interviewing a lot of people and this is what I heard. I heard millennials are terrible <laughs> or just give us a chance. You know, millennials are terrible from everybody who was older mm-hmm. and just like, you know, just give us a chance and we'll prove you wrong was the other thing. So I decided to ignore everything negative I saw and just focus on being positive because, you know, if you can't be positive about who you're working with every day, you know, stay in bed. I'm just, just get another job, do something different. So, um, a lot of, a lot of interviews, a lot of reading, a lot of studying, a lot of, um, coaching. And we came up with a culture that really works well for us where we have millennials, uh, Gen Xers and boomers all working together high performing. We have a lot of fun together and we don't really have this, um, generational negativity in between us. Um, I didn't really think anything of it. Sort of, we figured it out. Thank God, you know, I had a lot of less, a lot less drama in the office, all the kind of stuff. And then, um, I was helping, I was meeting with a, a woman, um, about something totally different. And, um, this millennial interrupted us from her own office and, she rolled her eyes and, you know, these millennials are so terrible. And I just said, oh, well, what's your problem? We had a lot of issues before. We sort of figured it out. Here's what we know. And I gave her some pointers. And she goes, I will publish that book. And I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? What book? I don't have a book. She goes, that book about millennials. I'm like, oh, <laughs> well, I was going to write something different, but okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I I had the very great fortune of having a publisher really drop an opportunity in my lap uh, for millennial. And then what came out of it was millennials and management, the essential guide to making it work at work, which came out in October of 2014. Mm -hmm. And that has been, um, you know, it's really a book that is written for teams. It's not written for management or for millennials. It's written for everybody together 
the back half of every chapter is do's and don'ts so that one group isn't taking the full brunt of making something good happen. Yeah. Everyone has to figure, you know, you have to, one of the big problems with business books is they're written just for managers. So managers go away, they have a workshop, they come back, they have all these new things they're trying on people and their people are like, what the heck just happened? You know, who, who are you people? <laughs> So I really wrote my book for full teams, no matter how old you are, no matter how much experience you have to read together so you can, you know, know about different points of view and figure out a way forward for everybody. So a team, you know, work does not have to suck. Teams do not have to suck, but teams have to perform and people will perform better when they're happy, feel appreciated and they know what the heck they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not rocket science. You know, I would, I could wish I could say my book wasn't rocket science. It's not. Um, but it is a lot of common sense put into action. Mm. And it's funny how a lot of common sense is not actually common practice in business. (laughs) You know, Chi, if I had a dollar for every time someone (laughs) said that to me, I would not have to talk to you today. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but one key characteristics of millennials, though, is that, you know, the boomer generation expected when they got into work they'd work for a company for 20 years 30 years retire yeah. get the pension and then the gold watch but mm-hmm. millennials are quite different you know 18 yeah. months maybe two years and then it's time mm-hmm. to hop off to the next thing so um that tells me two things a um i think it's from something like this that you got the inside to write your book, The Boomerang Principle, mm-hmm. because you observed yes. this happening in your company and you also said you've hired, rehired 14 people, mm-hmm. right? So talk to yes. us a little bit about what um, inspired you to write the second book. Sure. So the second book, The Boomerang Principle, which is inspire lifetime loyalty from your employees even when they don't work for you, really was inspired by the work that I did around the first book. You know, I was, I was doing lots of workshops, lots of keynotes, lots of, you know, panels on this stuff. And I, you know, Im- immediately, you know, I'd finished my presentation and someone would stand up and go, these millennials, they have no loyalty. They're terrible. Why am I going to put any effort into them? Because they're just going to leave me fast. Yeah. Right. You know, and as soon as they leave me, they're dead to me. They're just, I mean, ugh, right? They're just so, so much disgust. And um, and I just say to them, you know, that is so short-sighted. You know, I was not very popular when I say this, G, but <laughs> you know what? I get it. I understand why you're disappointed, but really, mm. you're disappointed because they left you before you wanted mm. them to. You yeah. know what? Yeah. <laughs> Number one. Number two, you think people don't know that you're, you're waiting for them to leave? Uh-huh. Of course they know. Oh, yeah. Of course they know. And why would you want to stick around? Why would you want to stick around if the people who you're working with have no interest in helping you get where you want to be? Yeah. You wouldn't, yep. number two. And then number three, of course millennials do not stay in jobs as long as their parents did. The economy has shown us that companies, and particularly publicly traded ones, will dump a person, yep. even if they don't have to for profit, for shareholder value all the time. Yeah. And their parents in 2008 and 2009, 10 million um, boomers and Xers in the United States lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of those com- some of those companies went out of business entirely. But other people lost their jobs because they couldn't get to shareholder value. Yeah. Well, they didn't have to- all those jobs did not have to be removed from the economy. But it was it a good excuse. 
It was an excellent excuse. So their parents, millennials' parents, have said, do not count on your company to take you through your whole career. Yep. Don't get stale. People who were at, at their companies for six, seven, ten years try to look for new work, and they're like, oh, you were sort of there too long, you know? So they were telling their kids, their adult children, don't stay too long. And then at the same time, you have millennials. This is a generation who um, knows that they can change the world with it, what's with the power in their hand. They have, they can tweet, and JetBlue will return to the tarmac from the tarmac. Yeah, you know, and they want to make a difference. They see all the ill in the world, and they, re, you know, my experience of millennials, and it's you know, 80 million people. Do 80 million people really all want to make a difference? Well, I believe they do, or I believe the vast majority of them do, and. If they don't feel like their job's important and they're not making a difference and they're not really contributing overall, well, then why stay, right? True. So all those things together, and I would just say to these boomers and Xers, I'm like, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. You are pushing them out faster. What if you didn't care? You know, every time you hire somebody, you know they're going to leave you. By definition, you know they're going to leave. Uh-huh. They, you don't, they don't own the company. They don't have to stay. Right. So what if you just said, I know you're going to leave. I want you to be as productive as possible for as long as possible. Uh And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you're as productive as possible for as long as possible, which means I'm going to train you, which means I'm going to understand what motivates you, which means I'm going to make sure that you um, will like coming to work every day. Right. And if you focus on that instead of the eventuality of them leaving, number one, people stay longer. And people are more productive Mm -hmm. and people actually then are happy. They may decide in their own in their own goals that the company that they're in at the moment does not help them satisfy their goals. But it doesn't mean that it has to be a negative experience. Them leaving does not have to be a negative experience and can be a very positive one for the company Mm -hmm. over time. So my second book, The Boomerang Principle, is really about that. How do we create um lifetime loyal employees because um, who will return value to the companies they work for over their entire careers, not just when we pay them, because is it really loyalty if we're paying somebody? Yeah. And I'll give to you, no, it's a transaction. It's Mm -hmm. not loyalty. Loyalty is what happens when no one's looking, when there's nothing expected. Mm. Um, And it's not when we work for them. So it could just be even recommending your old company, as a potential service Absolutely. provider to your new company. So you're like a friend of the firm within the Absolutely. Your new environment. Everybody who leaves a company can help it or hurt it. Yeah. Every single one. That's true. And it has always been true, but it's been very muted. Today, it's super true, yeah. right? It's super true. Yeah. Everyone who leaves a company can help it or hurt it. A company that's not doing everything it can you know, within reason to make sure that people leave and help them is just shooting themselves in the foot. Yep. It's not very sustainable. Yeah. So uh, listening to that, I, I get the feeling that a lot of the reasons why people live is because of the culture of the company and also their relationship with their superiors, the bosses and their managers. And Knowing that a lot of people transition out because of this, what are some things that um, managers directly and directors, partners, owners of firms can do? What can they do to start making their work environment more friendly and more um, appealing to people who may not just be 
wanting to leave because they want to leave, but just because they are fed up with the way the system currently is. Mm -hmm. So I have several recommendations on this. First is um, context. Everyone needs to know what is the goal of the company? What is the goal of the team? And what is my role in the team? Right? So if everybody can't tell you why the company exists and why they're coming to work every day, well, then you got a big problem, right? So making sure that you're very clear on your goal and your mission and your values. Um, making sure you're providing context for everything. Here's the project. Here's what our team is responsible for. When we succeed, this is how it contributes to the overall company performance. And then, then bringing it down to each individual. Your role in this team is whatever it is. And everyone is counting on you. I think a lot of people don't think their work matters. Yeah. Uh, and I'm here to tell you that no one, okay, 99% of employees are hired because there's a job to do. Most companies aren't sitting around going, hey, I got some extra cash. I'm going to hire some people to sit around. You know, that's not happening. <laughs> Every job that gets hired is important um, because it wouldn't exist if it didn't have to get done. So if you understand that people are counting on you, you just do a better job. We are terrible terrible at making sure everyone understands those things and if you can just spend the time uh it just takes half an hour so that everyone's clear on what they're doing why they're doing it what success looks like and who who is everybody on the team and what is everyone supposed to do you will uh, create a tremendously different environment the second piece is um appreciation teams that feel appreciated outperform those that don't by up to 30 percent on the bottom line and appreciation is something that is measurable. I mean, these are studies that come out of Harvard, Wharton, the London School of Economics. This is not just, you know, Lee thinking this, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, teams that feel appreciated perform better, and it's measurable. So how do, you, how do you do appreciation? One, you say please and thank you. And I have to say, Chi, this is one of the hardest things I learned. My father is a cardiac surgeon. He used to say, please and thank you are implied. And his reasoning was, you know, if I'm in an operating room and I say, please scalpel, oh, my gosh, the person might die. Yeah. Well, most of us are not in those kind of situations, right? <laughs> most of us are not in life or death situations uh, during our workplace. So figuring out how to say please and thank you, I appreciate it, would you please, thank you so much, whatever it is, just goes a long way in helping people understand that you matter to them. And everybody wants to matter. It is human nature to want to matter. And... Uh, humans come to work, right? And there was a time, I think, in a particularly American culture, where like, oh, we have to be automatons, no tears, no laughter, just come in, punch the clock, do your work. And um, that that does work, but it's very inefficient. Mm. And in today's environment, you know, in razor-thin margins with fast-moving markets, you have to have a most efficiency possible, and efficiency comes out of appreciation. Yeah. The third thing is feedback. Feedback that is very specific, and very fresh. Don't let people be l wrong for long, right? Hmm. Um, or do, or don't of... wait until annual review because sometimes that's when exactly. people only oh give feedback. Gosh. Right. So, um, and this is particularly around millennials on deadlines and time, right? There's a particularly when people just start right out of college. You know, you're late. Well, no, well, I'm here. I'm doing my job. I got it done. I went to Starbucks, logged in, da da da. You know, whatever, right? No, we need, you need to be in the office. You know, and, and I worked with a woman 
uh, who has had a huge problem. She thought it was a huge problem with her, her with her younger staff. And I said, oh, I'm going to have to. She said to me at Lee, I'm going to have to fire this person. I mean, she is late every day. Every day she's late. And she just doesn't come in. Early. She doesn't come in on time. And I said, you know, Anne, well, have you told her? Well, no. She should know better. I'm like, oh, my God. Well, does she know when the time? Did you actually have the conversation here, our office hours, and here's when I need you to have in the office? Well, why should I have to do that? This is the business hours. This is, you know, they're common. I'm like, they're not common anymore. And then the third thing was like, well, how long has this been going on? Six months. Six months and let this person be wrong. I said, well, I don't think it's fair that you fire this person when you haven't even told her what she's doing wrong. So my point is, don't let someone be wrong for long. Mm-hmm. Get in there. Be give fresh feedback that's actionable positive even if it's constructive you can do it in a positive way um set context be appreciative and these things do a tremendous people not just millennials but people want to be in Mm -hmm. and frankly where millennials thrive you create an environment where everyone can yeah. Thrive. Agreed. So, go on. No, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So now, what um, for companies are adamant about not hiring a boomerang, for example? What are some mm-hmm. things they can do to start changing their mentality? Well, I think the numbers are in uh, Boomerang's favor, right? So if people are staying shorter periods of time in their companies than companies want, if they say they're not going to rehire a former employee, they're greatly diminishing their talent pool from which to pull over time, from which to recruit. And in in a world where the top 20%, we all want the top 20 percenters, not looking everywhere for the top 20 percenters, including those people who used to work for you, you give yourself advantage. So I would just say, you know, some ways you can, a company can create an you can post. Job, um, private networks on this stuff with lying in it, um, and it let keep them attached to you so that they can actually talk good things about you in, out there in the world. But if they're not attached to you and you're not keeping them um, linked to you either through LinkedIn or through general networking, then you're leaving money on the table mm. by not taking advantage, not advantage, but not leveraging your people who you did hire in the past. Mm. Right. And as we start to transition towards the end of the show, Lee, this is the point where I ask uh, pointed questions in terms of seeking advice for people that are either early in the career, early in the entrepreneurial career, or transitioning from corporate into entrepreneurship. So, uh, what hey. gets what gets you excited in the morning to come to go to work? The people I'm working with. I've never worked with such great people ever in my career. And what's the frustrate, most frustrating thing about being an entrepreneur <laughs> in your 
experience? The people I work with. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, you know, um, the frustrating things are when, you know, things are going really well and then something goes out of whack out of something you couldn't control, but you were doing great work, you know? And we're, um, and that happens in every business. Things are going along, you're hitting all your KPIs and all of a sudden, you know, there's a new client or someone gets hired or fired at the client and they want something different or, you know, a client gets bought, which was your job to help them get bought and they don't want your services anymore. And like, oh my gosh, I was, we were doing such a great job and now we have to do it again. You know, those things you can't control. The, the frustrating things are, the most frustrating I get is when it's something I could have controlled and I didn't. Hmm. Because all you really can control is yourself. And if you control yourself, you're way ahead of everybody else. Yeah. And the most frustrating is when we don't control ourselves. And in your experience, what's a significant personal failure experience and how did you recover from it? Well, I've had a lot of failure, cheese. So I have so many things to choose from. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> um, I think that uh, not moving fast, not identifying what I call the boiling frogs fast enough. So, um, you know, the, uh, there's a, you know, the myth of the boiling frog is that a frog jumps into a pot of boiling water It'll jump right out because it knows it shouldn't be in there. But a frog that's in cold water that you turn the heat up over time to until it's boiling, it's like, oh, this is nice and warm. And all of a sudden it's boiled to death. Yeah. So how boiling frogs are those things that you should deal with right away. And it's just messy and you just don't want to do it. And then in retrospect, you're like, oh, my gosh, all the signs were there. And I just didn't pay attention to the fact that the water was boiling. Right. So the boiling frogs, learning how to identify boiling frogs and then really just getting in there and doing it. Because if you say to yourself, "Ugh, that's just too hard, that's when you know you should do something right away. Mm. And I think every failure I've had is because I ignored the boiling frog. <laughs> okay. so, so could you give an example of one that sticks out in your mind? Sure. Um, again, it's about people. Um, there's a person, um, that, uh, didn't agree with the direction of the company, um, but had done tremendous work in the past. Um, and we set a new vision for, in a new direction for the company, didn't agree and sort of did everything to get in the way of getting to the goal. And I forget and sort of just ignored it or forgave it because um, that person had contributed so much in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, every time, you know, that person put a, a roadblock up was a, some as a, was a step I wasn't able to take and the company wasn't able to take forward. I should have just taken him out right when that started um, after I addressed it a couple of times. And instead I let, you know, I, it, was getting, it was getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And I just kept saying, oh, it's just too hard. You know, he, he was a contributor for a long time. I should just, uh, it's all right. And in the end, um, when I, we did finally part ways, it was such a relief. You know, it shouldn't never be such a relief for someone to leave. <laughs> and I learned that the hard way again. Yeah. And as a communications expert, podcaster, writer, mm -hmm. international speaker, What are some of the books, podcasts, 
uh, learning materials you consume to help you become a better professional? Mm -hmm. I really enjoy, I'm a voracious reader, um, and uh, some of the books that I recommend for entrepreneurs are Primal Leadership, um, and it's about the different styles of leadership that you want to employ over time and in different situations. Um, I think that's a, a great book that everyone should read. Also, um, Pat Lencioni's um, The Advantage. The Advantage is sort of how you uh, build the values and the behaviors in your company that gives you the advantage to create a sort of a frictionless workplace. Um, in the practical sense for... Um, Jay Bear's Hug Your Haters. Mm. Hug Your Haters is uh, a book about how to take the people who hate you in social media and your company and how to turn them into advocates. And sort of, uh, he has a very customer-centered view. I have a very uh, talent-centered view on that. And sort of my th my earlier point, anyone who leaves you can hurt you or help you. It's the sort of same sort of idea on the customer side. I think those three books right now are the ones that are really resonating for me. I tell everybody to read them. <laughs> Great. And as I mentioned earlier, you're also a podcaster. Your podcast is titled yes. Focus is Your Friend. Double down on marketing that matters. So tell the listeners a little bit about what your podcast is about and why you're focused on marketing so much. Sure. So uh, Focus is Your Friend is a marketing podcast. It's it's for um, anyone really who's in marketing or communications or PR or events, social media. And it's about how to choose what to do. There are so many things you can do in marketing today from direct to website to SEO to PR to influencer. There's so many things to do and no one ever has enough money to do what they want to do. Yep. And my point of view is it is better to do one thing really well than to do many things half-assedly. So focus is your friend lets me, I say it all the time, <laughs> like, okay, people, focus is our friend. What are we going to be doing? What are we going to do? Um, and I talk with CMOs, the VPs of communication, um, and other experts about how they choose what to do in different situations. Um, because a lot of people think they know what marketing is, and most people don't. Yeah. Um, and so being able to defend yourself when you're putting forth a strategy is super, super important. Why I focus on marketing is that's what we do for a living. Yep. And um, it helps. Uh, one of the reasons I started the podcast was actually uh, for my staff because they wanted more of my time and 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 it would this is a way for me to create a library of learning they actually still, that they still wanted more to. of you after 15 years they always want more of my time <laughs> <laughs> so basically the podcast is uh you know sort of library of learning so that the people they can understand what we're all about through the lens of p other people who are experts in their own field mm, great great and I, I know how important focus is because as entrepreneurs, we are wired to want to move from one thing to the next. And especially in marketing, there's so many shiny objects that you think will help your business grow. But when you spread yourself too thin, you end up not doing any one thing well. Exactly. Yeah. It is just better to do one thing at a time than to try to do 95 things because um, there are too many things to do. There are way too many things to do. Yeah. I think the other thing as an entrepreneur, what's really important for you to know as an entrepreneur is what you're really good at. And, uh, I can, you know, what I what I can do and what I'm good at are two different things. Right. One's a subset of the other. And uh, the first thing I did when I started my company was I hired a controller, you know, I hired an outside controller who did all of our accounting. 
because um, I could put all that time in tracking down the invoices and, you know, truing up the accounts and doing the QuickBooks, but it would take me much more time than it would be to have to hire someone who knows, knows what the heck they're doing. And I need you need to focus your time where you're most valuable as an entrepreneur. And it's not, unless you're an accountant, it's not in accounting. And the second to the last question of the day, what would you do differently if you had to go back and start all over again, knowing what you know now? I would um, expand the business much faster. I would have opened up the New York office, you know, 10 years earlier than I did. Um, and uh, that, that is definitely what I would do differently. And to people looking to start a new business or just starting out their careers millennials that just graduated what last mm -hmm. last month in may or two months ago in yeah may. what's your mm -hmm. advice to young people in that boat you know i think the people who just graduated from college you know here's what you need to know you just get a job it really doesn't matter what job it is just get you know you you're not going to make the first job is not the job it's never the job but you're going to learn so much in that first job and, you know, try to stick it out for two years. Try to, can you be in that place for two years? What are you going to learn? Bring that job out with anything you can learn from it, you know, getting the experience, getting, you know, learning how to master the craft of whatever it is, and then you can leverage it into something new. But I think a lot of um, recent graduates get disheartened because they have to start at the bottom. They don't like it. Um, and they're, they're worried that this job is going to pigeonhole them. And in today's world, you're never pigeonholed. You have so much opportunity that, um, the more important thing is to get the experience under your belt than it is to get the exact experience in the right career. Great. And with that said, Lee, we've come to the end of the show. I really like to thank you for coming aboard. So where can people learn more about you and get your two books? So the best place to learn about me or follow me is at my website, which is leecarraher.com, L-E-E-C-A-R-A-H-E-R.com, or on Twitter, I'm at Lee Carraher. On my website, you can find my company, Double Forte, my books, and there's some other um, tools on, on the website that might help you um, decide what to do. Um, and then I also blog there at leecarraher.com, so you can find, I'm really easy to find. <laughs> Maybe I'm too easy to find you. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> no, you're never, you are never overexposed. It's, it's good. You need to be everywhere, right? That's what they say in marketing. That's what they say. You need to be everywhere well. So it's better to do be fewer places really well than everywhere not so well. Hmm. Great. And I'd just like to say thank you for coming and sharing your story and your wisdom, Lee. It's been a pleasure talking to you for this last one hour. What a pleasure to talk with you, Chi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to listen to today's episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. As always, you can find more episodes and more information about the show that you just listened on our website, odogwu.com. And whatever you're doing, I hope you have a profitable and pleasurable day. Cheers, guys. Bye. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.